Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Now, we're recording this um, on the Friday before the British Grand Prix and after the Goodwood Festival of Speed. So this is, this is car week in the UK, really. It means there's plenty going on. There's plenty of news, lots to talk about. Um, we're going to be talking about the new Aston Martin Valhalla, the production car, which got unveiled um, very recently. We'll talk about the new look 2022 F1 cars. But Andrew, I don't know if you've got your eye on this or not. Later on today, um, we will see the first qualifying session for the first sprint race at the British Grand Prix. Um, so th- th- this is a new initiative, isn't it, for this year that um, F1 is is trialling out. Uh do you, are you going to be tuning in, um, and what are your expectations? Um, well, it's a bit difficult, isn't it? Because everybody listening to this already knows what's happened. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I won't that's true. So let, let's uh, let's not dwell on that. But yes, of course, I'm going to be. Of course, I'm going to be tuning in. I mean, uh, what I would say is that although if you're there, I think Silverstone because it's so flat is uh, it, it has quite limited opportunities from a spectator point of view. But if you're watching it on the telly, I think it is one of the very best places you can watch racing cars on the telly. Because particularly when you go through um, the Maggots Beckett's complex, things like that, and, and, and in the new bit where, you, where they're kind of like flat through turn one, um, I, I, there aren't many other places on the calendar where you get an impression, not just of the raw speed of the car, but just how quickly these things go through corners. Um, and also the other thing is that, you know, there will be, you know, a very large number of people listening to this who know their way around Silverstone, um, who've gone and done track days there or driven there or done some drive school there or whatever. Um, so, you know, again, you know, if, if I don't imagine too many of us have been around the track of Baku, so you don't really <laughs> know what you're looking at. Um, but, you know, many of us, you know, know Silverstone like we know, you know, the street outside our houses. And so you just have that reference point and you actually know. And, and that's what makes it look so amazing because you kind of know in your head how quickly you might poddle through Maccas and Beggars. And then these Formula One cars come along and they're just boom, 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 gone. Um, and, and I just, and also the, it's, it's what, it's another thing is that that particular complex is another uh, area where Formula One cars look fast from the outside. You know, there are, there are certain camera angles where they come in and because you can see them changing direction, it is absolutely mind-boggling to watch. So, yeah, I mean, I will be tuned into it. I always do tune into it, but I tune into all Grand Prix, but um, particularly 
British Grand Prix, uh, A, because it's Britain, of course, blah, 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 but also because it's, it's a really good place to watch Formula One on a television set. Yeah, yeah, I'm quite excited, actually. So after we finish work this Friday evening, there'll be a qualifying session to tune into. So yeah. I think that'd be quite good. I might have a beer, watch qualifying, um, and then... So what else have we got? So then there'll be another practice session on Saturday morning and then the sprint race uh, and then the Grand Prix on Sunday. So And the Grand Prix on Sunday. So the grid, the grid for the Grand Prix on Sunday is determined by the results of the sprint race. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, yeah. we'll see if that encourages uh, some, some of these guys to go for that dicey lunge because they want to get on the front row. I don't know. It could be good, but we'll reflect on it on the next episode of the podcast and and see actually how it does pan out. Okay, let's move on to the Aston Martin Valhalla unveiled this week as we're recording this. Now we saw the concept car a couple of years ago, didn't we? Um, yeah. And this this now Geneva, is the actual, Geneva 2019. Yeah. So it's been a little while. This now is the actual production car. It looks quite similar initially. But when you start looking at the details, and particularly when you look at the two cars side by side, you see there are some quite significant differences. Yeah. Um, they've gone and put a typical Aston Martin grille on this one, haven't they? Um, I've only seen the pictures. I haven't seen it in, in the flesh. I, that grille looks slightly forced to me at the moment. I, can't, I think when you see cars in pictures, you sort of pick out the details much more. When you see it in real life, you appreciate the, the presence of the car, the overall stance, the appearance of the car. So I'm sort of reserving judgment until I've actually clocked the thing with my own two eyes. But at the moment, I, just that grill slightly bothers me. Otherwise, I think the car looks superb. Oh, interesting, because I, it doesn't bother me at all. I, it, it, in fact, it bothered me much more without, because it looked like one of my concerns was always that it was going to be perceived to be sort of like a sort of Valkyrie light. It was the kind of consolation prize for people who couldn't get a Valk. Yeah. Um, And it looked like that. And the spec was a bit, um, you know, um, in terms of its, you know, million, what was it? 1.2 million pounds it was going to be. um, And limited to 500 units. It was very much that, you know, ultra high performance, ultra high price, limited edition hypercar. Um, and that worried me because, you know, it, to me, it was a car that could only ever um, sit in the shadow of the Valkyrie. Because clearly, whatever it does, um, it ain't going to be like the Valkyrie. Um, but now that they've done that, because they've now made it look more like an Aston Martin, well, frankly, they've made it look more like a production car, which is, I'm sure, we'll go on to discuss, um, is what it has become. It's a very, very, very different thing to that which was originally envisaged. Uh, and what I find very particularly interesting about this is this is kind of, this is the first car, this is the first new car, which has been influenced by Tobias Merz, the new boss, Andy Palmer's replacement. Um, and, you know, he's clearly gone in there and looked at it and gone, nah, we're not going to do that. Mm. Um, we're going to do this car, but we're going to do it in a completely different way. Um, I was really surprised when I saw the race, and I was with one fairly substantial proviso. I was quite encouraged by what I saw, but maybe we'll get onto that in a minute. Okay, uh, all right. Well, let's go through some of the background. So the the concept car was going to have a three liter V six twin turbo hybrid powertrain. Um, that was a concept engine, and it's one of the things that Murs has chucked out the window. I suspect he's put a few noses out of joint in that place because he's making making some very significant calls, isn't he? Yeah, but he said he said the engine was nowhere a concept near engine. Yeah, product. I mean, he, yes, but when he said it's a concept engine, um, he didn't mean that as a compliment. 
Yeah, he got there. He was expecting a production engine. Um, and what he was saying was, this is an engine fit for a concept car and nothing else. Um, and, yeah, and, and he said, and we haven't even talked about Euro 7 yet, which is the new forthcoming. I mean, nobody knows what Euro 7 is and nobody knows when it's going to come. Um, but it will be the most swinging um, cuts to emissions and the most difficult. You know, it's the last of the of, of, of these big um, sets of emissions legislation before everything goes EV. Uh, and the view is, is that they're going to be, is it's going to be a nightmare to be compliant with it. Uh, and Merz's view is that the engine was never going to do that. And if you can't make the engine do that, then there's literally no point having the engine. So he binned it. I mean, and how many millions went in the bin too? Yeah, engines are, engines are hideously expensive things to do even if you're volkswagen you know you don't do one unless you have to um and you know the idea of you know this is why you know i've been uh you know amazed that mclaren have done um you know a brand new engine um but like maybe they didn't have a choice but you know it is such an expensive to, thing thing to do uh, which is why the last time aston martin did an engine in-house was the 1960s. <laughs> okay. just, I remember you writing about it when they announced this new V6 and you said, aha, their first in-house yeah. engine for half a century yeah. or more. So, so, in fact, Aston Martin has really... Someone's going to let me know how wrong I am with it, but I think I'm right. I think Aston Martin's only ever done two engines. because, Well, certainly in the post-war period, because when you know all those engines of the 1950s were... Um, a W.O. Bentley designed um, engine, which they got when they bought Lagonda. Then they did the straight six, which went into the DB4, DB5, DB6, DBS, um, which was one of their engines. And then they did the V8, which we all know about. I think those are the only two Aston- engines that Aston Martin has ever done entirely mm. by itself. And everything will ever else, be. Yeah, everything else, even the V12s that they have been um, using for years and years and years and continue to use in the... Uh, in the DBS and the and the DB11, even that you know started life um, in a Ford concept car, and they're th- only their third ever engine. They go to all that effort, all that expense. Um, and <laughs> the man from AMG walks in the room and goes, "Nah," and tucks <laughs> it in the bin. So you know you may, you are probably right. I suspect he did put a few noses out of joint. What we don't know um, is whether that was a right and necessary thing to do. Um, I suspect it probably was, but who mm. knows? So it's no coincidence, is it, that the bloke from AMG turns up um, and uh, quite shortly after the V6 goes in the bin and the replacement engine um, for the Valhalla is the 4-litre twin-turbo V8 from the AMG GT, specifically the one from the Black Series with the flat-plane crank. Um, who knows how much re-engineering work it took to put an 8 rather than a 6 in there. Uh, we'll never know. It's still a hybrid um, so it does mean that there's another Mercedes engine in an Aston Martin. Uh, of course, it's closely related to the one that they're using already. Um, I think some people will pick up pick Aston Martin up on that. But, you know, we're going from a V6 to a V8. That's potentially quite good. Um, and we know it's a, a fairly thunderous engine. Um, it's far and away the most anybody would have charged for that 4-litre V8. Um, because even though they've cut the price broadly in half this car is still going to cost six hundred thousand pounds plus um so it's it's a very different proposition to that which we were presented with when the the valhalla concept was first shown yeah so that was a 1.2 million pound car which of which they're going to build 500 um it's now a six to seven hundred thousand pound car 
um, which is not being limited. Okay, they're not putting a number on it. This is my concern, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, the other thing that's happened to it is it's been pushed back. Um, you know, I think that when we saw it in 19, I think Aston Martin said that they thought that they would get it out in um, towards the back end of this year. Now, obviously, COVID has happened and you know the world's a very different place now, so you can't blame them. But I suspect there has been an, an additional delay because of the amount of re-engineering that's been required to, well, get a four-litre V8 in the space that was designed for a three-litre V6, which can't have been, you know, the matter of a moment. Um, and on the engine, you know, these things just don't bother me, I'm afraid. You know, I just don't drive these cars and thinking, you know, and I'm listening to that amazingly tuneful V8 and the wonderful torque that it delivers. I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, God, it's a Mercedes engine. I just, it's just not a thought process that I have. It really isn't. You know, it doesn't not do as long the job. as it's a good engine. Exactly. Um, yeah, the flat plane crankshaft is is interesting because, you know, um, as I'm sure everybody listening to this will know, it turns it from that sort of um, traditional American Detroit V8 rumble into that sort of sharp-edged howl that you get from other people who use flat plane cranks like um, McLaren and Ferrari. Um, and the reason that you do it is the engine can you know, rev higher and so you get more power out of it. And actually, the 740 horsepower that you get out of this engine in the Valhalla is the most that engine has produced. If you think about it, you know, a four litre engine producing that amount of power, that's before you stuck the hybrid on it. Um, so, but at the same time, yeah, so, so total system output, I think it's uh, 937 horsepower. Um, and what interests me is that's kind of about where the Ferrari SF90 is, yeah? And they're very similar cars in terms of, you know, four litre twin turbo four wheel drive hybrids you know producing you know close to a thousand horsepower but the aston is going to be twice the money slightly troubling that isn't it they've cut the price almost in half but compared to that sf90 exactly um and i suspect because they say it weighs 1550 dry which means it'll weigh 1650 wet effectively whereas something like a McLaren 720S will weigh about 1380 weight so it's you know it's you know, it's going to be a lot heavier than that so its power to weight ratio isn't going to be dramatically different it will be it will be better than that with the 720S but it's not going to be you know any better than a an SF90s well it might be because it will be a bit lighter than an SF90 but not much there's not um, much in it no no but my concern with this car is it's so much money and, you know, I think that there is an entire constituency of people who might well consider spending that amount of money on a car like that if they considered it to be sufficiently exclusive. But if Aston Martin aren't going to say how many they're going to build, I mean, I don't know. Do you, can you think of any car that has ever been offered for sale for that amount of money where no limit on production has been set? Mm, yeah, put like that, it's a... It's a bold move. Um, and actually, I, mean, I, I can see the logic. I can see the logic from their point of view because in terms of the numbers of people who are prepared to spend a seven-figure sum on a car, half a million quid on a car, £100,000 on a car, it's a pyramid. And you get exponentially more buyers at the lower price points. Um, and I think that on reflection, actually, even though they had put a, a limited number, uh, they had published a limited number of 500, finding 500 people to spend seven figures on a car... I think that is a very tall order. I suspect what they've done is gone, we actually stand more of a chance of earning the same revenue if we make plenty more and cut the price. 
Yeah, maybe. Um, and let's say they make a thousand. Okay, so you know, so their net revenue is the same. Um, but I think they would have a hell of a lot more chance of selling a thousand if they said we're going to make a thousand. I actually think they should they should make you know nine hundred and fifty, which is the car's output in PS. Um, so you could tie it to that. Um, and you know, and if you find yourself in the wonderful position where the car sells so many, you end up kicking yourself because you realise you're going to sell more than a thousand. Well, you know, take the money. Uh, enjoy the profit, maintain your residuals, keep that demand. You know, you always want to be making fewer cars than the market wants. Um, and, you know, we have learned, you know, talking about price points, you know, at a completely different price point. You know, the one huge mistake that McLaren will, privately at least, now admit they made with the 600LT um, is not telling the world how many they're going to make. You know, they could have come up with quite a large number but I think the moment that there is a number on it, the moment that a certain amount of exclusivity is attributed to it. Um, and I think if you don't put a number on it... Now, I've been told by somebody at Aston Martin that actually they don't think they're going to build more than a 1,000 Valhalla's because, you know, they know how many people there are in the market for convert and they know what the car's probably you know, life cycle is going to be and they think, you know, and, and there's probably not going to be a roadster version of it because um, with the door mechanisms and, and everything else, it would be very difficult to, to engineer. And so they think that, you know, the market for that kind of car is about a 1,000 cars. So why not say so? Say so. And if it turns out that there are 2,000 people who want one, wait a little bit, do another car with the next technologies. And you know that it will sell because this one has been a success. Buyers didn't get their fingers burned the way that some McLaren buyers have done. Um, hmm, I don't know. I, I think I agree with you. That's my big concern with that. I mean, I don't know another car of anything like that money that has been put... Um, on general sale as a mainstream production model uh, with with no limit with no stated limit to the total production um, and I think that you know the other thing is is that you know they um, they have from now until the spring of two thousand and twenty three um, to consider their position and i wouldn 't be surprised if you know at some stage in the next year um, a little statement comes out saying to make this car even more exclusive we decided to limit production to a thousand units or whatever um and i would be, I would be fully supportive of that yeah agreed um do you know what i'm excited about this car because i'll get to have a go in it one day uh it, <laughs> it looks go. great it's yeah you know, i'm it pleased does. that aston martin are doing exciting cars like this it's great but ultimately i think i sort of struggle to understand what it is that they're for um the valkyrie i can understand because it exists in a totally different strata and it has a very specific set of targets that car um, but I wonder about these sort of slightly mid-range, are they supercars, are they hypercar type things? And it includes the SF90, because you look at the competition from within. What exactly are you getting with an SF90 that you're not getting from a 296 GTB? What are you getting from a Valhalla that you won't get from this um, mooted, potentially forthcoming Vanquish, should it happen, which we know will have a well, hybrid system as well? Yeah. Well, there we go. What are you getting from you know, whatever sits above the Artura that you're not getting from the McLaren Artura itself. You know, these, the, the 296 GTB, the Artura, the Vanquish, they're going to have staggering performance. They're going to have hybrid systems. They're going to look sensational. Um, I'd, I'm slightly at a loss to understand what it is that you're getting for spending another 50%, another 100% on, on the bigger mean, This goes back to what I was saying. If they said we're going to make a 1,000 units, there's your answer. What are you getting? You're getting exclusivity. But if they're not saying that, I mean, this is my thing. This is my problem with the SF90. You know, when I drove the SF90, um, I came back and said, 
you know, well, all terribly impressive, but how much better it would be uh, if you lost the driven front axle, gave the thing a bloody boot so you could actually go and use it, take it somewhere, um, and you would still have absurd power, um, but you'd have a usable car. Um, and you could charge a lot less money for it. And you know, I'm sure you know, <laughs> there's nothing to do with me, but that's the car the 296 GTB has turned out to be. Um, and, I, and I do take your point. Um, I guess, I don't know, no, Valhalla won't be done. You know, Valhalla will have to sell alongside Vanquish. Um, and Vanquish will probably cost a third of the money. Mm. You know, it's still going to have... 700 horsepower it'll have to because that's where the that, that's where the market for these cars is um, <laughs> seems enough yeah, it, doesn't it it probably won't have an electrically driven front axle um so it'll be a lot lighter um yeah and these are all the things that we've seen with the 296 versus two relative to the sf90 um i guess it'll just be people you know who just want people to realize that they can afford the expensive one you know look at me i don't have a vanquish i've got a valhalla and, you know, it's half a second quicker to 60 and it'll do 80 miles an hour in front wheel drive electric mode and, you know, this, that and the other. It'll it'll be stuff like that. But, you know, it's a hell of a premium to pay to be able to make those boasts, isn't it? It's an enormous premium to pay. OK, last thing to say about the Valhalla, the target Nürburgring lap time of under 6 minute 30 seconds. <laughs> That's fast. Um, they haven't done it yet. They need to now that they've said it, they're going to have to go out there and do it, aren't they? It's quicker than all bar. So, the Nürburgring 1000Ks was actually only ever held once on the Nordschleife as we know it now. Because before 1983, it was held on the combined Nordschleife and Schutzschleife. And then when they were built, in one year while they're building what is now the new Nürburgring, the Grand Prix track, they just ran it around. The, the, so so that, that's, that's, kind of, that's the only datum point we've got where we can measure. And that was the last time really 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 fast cars you know prototypes race at the Nürburgring um and so these were you know prototype racing cars weighing pff, I don't know, 800 kilos with you know 650 horsepower you know slicks like this um full wings you know the entire bodywork was a wing full ground effect underneath the car I mean absolute you know weapons and now if this car does it in qualifying for that race, and that was the race in which Stefan Beloff did his, you know, his 6.11 qualifying lap, um, the Valhalla would have put itself third on the grid, beaten only by the two works Rothmans Porsches driven by Stefan Beloff and Jackie X. Everything else, all the private <laughs> 956s, all the works Lancia Martinis, uh, LC2s driven by, you know, duffers like Riccardo Patrese, um, <laughs> it would have beaten the lot. Now I know the Nürburgring's changed a bit, they flattened it out a bit and it's not quite the same circuit and everything else. But even so, even as a broad rule of thumb, that's where we appear to be going with these cars now. I, 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 just don't, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. I think it's just, <laughs> it is extraordinary. It is well, absolutely yeah. nuts. It won't be your eye setting that six minute 30 lap time, that's for sure. It will not. Um, yeah. Good luck, Darren. Yeah, quite. <laughs> right. Okay, let's keep it moving then. Uh, we mentioned in the last um, episode of the podcast that you sat down with Jim Farley. Uh, we didn't really talk about it very much, though. Um, and the full interview, uh, by the time this goes out, will be available on the app. So if you want to listen to the full Jim Farley interview, you need to download the app and you'll find it on there. Um, he's the CEO of Ford, not yes. Ford of Europe or Ford Great Britain, of, of Ford. 
he's a motor company. He's a heavy hitter. And you got 20 minutes to sit down with him. Um, So how was he? I think you said that you wanted to talk to him enthusiast to enthusiast, not hard-nosed journalist to CEO. Yeah, I mean, it it just didn't seem to me, given where we were, um, and also given who our audience is, I just didn't think that talking to him about you know, profits and losses and factories and supply chains and production numbers and all that sort of thing. It doesn't seem to be to be particularly, well, you know, interesting. Uh, important, maybe, but maybe, but not very. And, you know, and the thing about uh, Jim Farley is he's actually, he's copped quite a lot of flack um, for, for racing because, you know, um, there are shareholders who think, well, you know, if he goes and kills himself in a race car, then, you know, that's not a great way to show leadership. And he says absolutely on the contrary. Uh, a, it's it's really good for his head, um, and B, you know, it shows the passion, and you just got to get out there and do it. And you know, he he started racing in you know in two thousand and eight, so not that long ago. But he did a first ever race in an AC Cobra, um, and since then he sort of moved up. He got himself a little two liter Lola two nine eight, beautiful little thing, raced out at Classic Le Mans. Um, he got really really good racing Cobras in America. I think he was one of the sort of top. Um, you know, gentleman Cobra racers out there. Um, and then he went and got himself a proper GT40. You know, not one of these, you know, modern recreations, uh, which can go and race because they get FIA papers. His is a GT40. Um, it was never raced in period. It was, um, it was, you know, it was one of those cars that was built up from stock that was left around after their racing period. But nevertheless, it is an original GT40. Um, and that's how he goes and um, enjoys himself. And I just, I just think it is so cool that guys like that um frankly that they're allowed to do it and that they choose to go and do it um and so we we just basically you know we talked about you know all sorts but basically his passion for racing uh, we talked a bit of quite a lot about road cars too uh, i did ask him um you know what the future is you know isn't going to be terribly boring with evs and and all that sort of thing um but he was just a really really interesting guy uh and a proper car guy a proper enthusiast um and so it was, you know, it was just great to sit down with him um, and, and have a proper interview rather than, you know, sit, uh, as we usually do with these guys, you know, trying to find out whether, you know, there's going to be a diesel version of the next model coming up or, <laughs> you know, what their next SUV is going to be. Um, we just, I mean, it really was, it was just a couple of car enthusiasts sitting down around a table talking about fast cars. It was great. It's really encouraging to know that there are proper car guys at the head of these companies. Akio Toyota at Toyota. Uh, Tobias Mers, he's a proper car guy at Aston. There are plenty of them. Um, I think we're all better off with people who really love cars in these positions. Um, I just want to play a few minutes of the Jim Farley interview now. Some people are giving you a hard time for racing because of, because of your job yeah. and because you employ hundreds of thousands of people. And some people have said that's perhaps not a, a terribly responsible position for somebody like you to be occupied. What, what, what do you say to those guys who just say people like you shouldn't be racing? Uh, I would say... Um I would say to them, then you don't understand the car business. Yeah. Uh, this is always and forever be a product business. And for me to, racing teaches you new things about uh, cars all the time, but it's mostly about people. Yeah. And I learned so much being at the racetrack from people about the car business. Um, and uh, so f- that's how I choose to spend my time I don't take stupid risks. I don't drive. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Uh, and so I never, I, I drive within my limits and I'm very careful which tracks I race at. Um, lots of runoff 
and I'm I'm careful. I still race. I want to win. Yeah. Um, to me, it it's racing is humbling, um, and leaders like myself need to be humbled all the time. Um, you know, you work hard for months on time, and then you go to spa, and something breaks after seven hours and or, or five hours, and and you've let your team down, and it feels terrible. <laughs> and uh, that's a lot of racing feels that way. Yeah. And to me, as a leader, the humility I get from racing, the highs and the lows, all the goods and the bad, plus being around people, it makes me a much better leader. There you go. As I said, the full thing. Um, is on the app if you want to listen to it. Go and download the app. Um, while I'm talking about the app, I also just want to mention a story that went up recently about Aston Martin Lagondas. Um, so a journalist, a writer called Tim Pitt, met the man who has the world's largest collection of Lagondas. He's got 24 of them, which I think is about 4% of the total production run, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's, I mean... It's extraordinary, all under one roof. Um, a few people have joked that you need 24 just to just to guarantee that one of them is working at any given time. Um, but it's a it's an interesting piece and it's free to read. So if you've got the app on your phone and you haven't yet subscribed, that one is free to read. So go and find it and you can just check it out and see what you're missing. It's a good example of the sort of you know rather off the wall, different sort of stuff that we do. I mean, hopefully. You know, the, well, what we do, I mean, sometimes, you know, if an important new car comes out, you know, something like the Lotus Amira, well, you know, clearly we're going to cover it because it would be, um, we wouldn't be doing our job if, if, if we weren't. But, you know, in most other respects, what we're trying to do with the app, um, and, you know, and it's something we try, we've, we've tried to do with the Instagram site, although that is inevitably more news-led, is we're just trying to tell stories that people don't know already. Um, interesting stories, stuff that you won't find in the other um motoring media uh and this is this is just a really good example of that it's it's it's, it's nicely written it's about a man um with a <laughs> slightly strange obsession but there you go i, I say that i've never driven one I've never, i'd like to i'd like to I, I suspect i'd like to drive one once um and i suspect i'll pro- i may even enjoy having driven it more than i enjoyed actually driving it but um it's it's just it's it's a real insight into the mind of uh, of someone who chooses to. I mean, he's got like, he's got like five hundred cars, isn't he? So it's not like he's got twenty four Lagondas and nothing else. He has got all sorts, from you know a Lamborghini Countach to um, you know an invalid carriage. Um, but he's also got these twenty four Lagondas, and it, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a really really good story, really interesting, and um, yeah, as Dan says, it's free, so you don't even need to. Um, hand over your credit card details just go take a look um andrew's a bit too modest to mention this so i'm going to do it on his behalf um, he's absolutely right when he says that on the app in particular we publish stuff that you will you just won't find elsewhere and that includes our first piece of fiction um and i know andrew has been incredibly apprehensive about uh posting this piece because he's never um, published a piece of fiction before it's a short story uh, called last lap um, you really must go and read it because it's genuinely an exceptional piece of writing. And I think anyone who identifies as a writer professionally <clears throat> at least harbours an ambition of writing fiction because it's as though it's the highest form of, of creative writing. Um, I certainly would like to someday. Um, and Andrew has now finally done it. And I suspect you feel quite exposed. I'll tell you what's difficult about it. Um, 
and you know it's, it's it's nice that it's up there and it's nice that a few people have said a few nice things about it um what's difficult about it is you know as a journalist um we always have a subject um, we're always you know whether it's a car we're driving or a news event we're reporting upon um and there's there's something external that we as journalists go to and you know examine and critique and whatever and that provides us with with what we do if you're going to do something that is fiction that safety net is gone that it's almost like a crutch that you lean upon all you're doing when you're doing that is instead of us being if you like a conduit for the reader to whatever it is we're talking about this is just hey look at me guys this is me and this this is me doing some writing and there's nothing else out there the only reason that story exists is for its writing um and that frankly bloody terrifies me um so because it is you know i i hate it um you know on television you have these journalists who have seemed to have formed the conclusion that they are the story um and you know i think the journalists you know the best journalists are pretty should be pretty invisible um and this is the opposite of that this is this is literally me putting myself up there saying that i think i'm good enough to do this um where frankly i i i, I suspect i'm probably not but um it it, it is uh you do feel <laughs> exposed is absolutely the word it, it abs- because there's no other reason for that to exist other than for its writing so um yeah if you'd like to take a look you know it's a it's called last lap i enjoyed doing it yeah um, well it'd be, interesting, it'd be interesting to see what the response is i i really enjoyed it um but i suppose i hope that you all agree that it's the kind of writing that you just won't find elsewhere that's exactly what we're that. trying to do it's certainly with the app. yeah you, you, yeah, yeah. You, it's it, it, it is for good, for good or ill it's certainly um not the sort of thing you'll that you'll find on you know in a normal motoring magazine okay good we've got a couple of other things to cover then so on September the 1st, <clears throat> the Interschool is holding its first track day. Um, we're going to be at Thruxton with our partners, Footman James and Gold Track. Um, crucially, we, we've arranged to run the day without the track's usual restrictive noise limit. So no, no car with road legal silencing will be turned away. So, you know, there are all sorts of things that have issues on track days. You know, 458 Speciales, GT3 RSs, GT3s even. Um, I think a lot of them trigger the noise limits, don't they? Um, and so that won't be an issue on this day. Uh, for now, app subscribers have priority booking. Um, so if you're absolutely de- desperate to come and join us and you're not an app subscriber, you can become one just by downloading the app, starting a free trial, um, and you'll find the details on there. Uh, we'll both be there. Karen Chandock will be there giving passenger rides. Um, we'll have a, a top draw photographer there with his, his images being made available. Um, so, as I said, subscribers do have priority booking. Uh, however, we are giving away two places <clears throat> free of charge as a prize. Um, so, if, you, if you're absolutely desperate to come and join us, you really should enter the competition. It's free to enter. It's a free prize draw. All the details are on Instagram, at the intercooler on Instagram. Uh, find the tile on our grid that says win. Um, and everything you need to know is underneath there. So we're giving away two places, absolutely free of charge. Please just remember, though, that you will need to bring your own car to come and drive on the day. We're not going to provide that for you. Um, but yeah, go and enter. It's easy to do. It won't take you a moment. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward. I mean, it'd be, it was, it's going to be really, really nice to get out and actually meet um, some intercooler subscribers face to face. Thruxton's an amazing place. It's Britain's fastest circuit. Um, and to go around there, to be driven around there by, you know, by Karun, um, I think 
uh, and hopefully he'll be in a GT3 911, uh, a new one. So, I mean, that should be an experience to, to savour and to remember. Huge shout out to Bark, the British Automobile Racing Club, uh, who operate Thruxton um, and who have um, basically made this all possible because normally they run a 90 decibel noise limit on their track days, um, which is, you know, that's really, really low. Even somewhere like Goodwood on their quiet days, 95 decibels, and it's an exponential scale. Um, so to be able to run there effectively unlimited, um, you know, gold track, um, can't remember that that's ever happened before for a track day. Um, so it really is a unique and very special occasion. And uh, yeah, thanks. So thank you, Bark, for um, making that possible for us. Uh, it's really appreciated. Indeed. Thank you. Okay, last thing to talk about this week, uh, the new look F1 cars. So we knew these regulations were supposed to come in originally for 2021 because of the pandemic, they got delayed, but they will come in at the start of next season. Um, I think we're all hoping it's a total reset for Formula One because, okay, we've got two cars that can win this season, but the racing still hasn't been spectacular. It's still only two teams who are able to win. Um, I, I really hope that for the next, the next phase um, of Formula One, the next few years, we have multiple teams, multiple drivers who are able to compete at the front. Um, the, the cost cap should really help there. What we saw uh, this week was the, what the new look F1 car uh, might actually look like. Although it's important to say that Formula One isn't moving to a standardised chassis the way Formula E um, is or the way IndyCar is. This is just to give us some idea of what the cars look like. The individual designers will, as they always do, interpret the rules the way they will and come up with their own cars. Um, but the, we, can, we can sort of debate the way the car looks and the livery. I don't think that sort of glittering livery, I don't think that really helped. Um, it, the, the car that the FIA or the F1 released, it, it looks, it's very heavily stylized and it looks like Hollywood doing an F1 car. Um, but we know the car's won't necessarily look that way so on appearance i think we should just wait uh, until we start seeing the cars arrive early next year however there is a huge amount to be optimistic about uh, there are some good stats released the whole point of these new regulations is to improve um, how effectively how efficiently one car can follow another so at the moment if you're tucked up behind another car 20 meters behind you will lose 35 percent of your downforce if you're 10 metres behind, so right on their gearbox, you lose almost half your downforce, 46%. And that's why drivers complain so much about how difficult it is to follow another. And that just means that they can't really race, or it's very difficult for them to race. The new car will lose 4% of its downforce at 20 metres rather than 35, and it will lose 18% at 10 metres rather than 46. Huge wow. improvements. Wow. Um, and it's been done because the underside of the car is doing much more work, ground effect. Um, and so that leaves cleaner air in its wake. And also the wings are less effective, the front and rear wings. And they also send the air high up it, well, into the air behind them and over the top of the following car. So rather than driving in dirty air behind the car in front, that air is going over the top and you're in much cleaner air. In theory, that means that drivers will be able to follow much more closely and make the overtake stick. Let's hope so. Can I just be curmudgeon in chief here now? <laughs> um, I wondered if you might. 
Well, all I can say is that the history of racing shows that you know, it doesn't really matter even which formula you're talking about. Um, every time you get a set of regulations um, brought in to slow cars down, because this is effectively what this is trying to what this is trying to do with much less downforce, um, the engineers find a way around it, and it always t- it always takes less time than people think. Unintended so, consequences. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they are such clever guys. Um, and I actually think that the, the, I think particularly the cost cap is really, really important. I think it should have been far more, um, severe than it has been. Um, and that if that cost Formula One top teams, that wouldn't trouble me at all. Um, because, you know, for every team you lost at the top, you get at least two more at the bottom because there are any number of great F2 teams and F3 teams who, if it were a bit more affordable, if it were, if there was a bit more of a chance of doing well, would pile into Formula One. Um, and, you know, you get back to the halcyon days of whenever it was, the 80s or 90s, when, you know, when you had to have pre-qualifying because you had so many cars trying to get in the race. And instead of having 20 cars on the grid, you might have 30 or 35. And that obviously produces, you know, much greater racing. Um, but even so, I think it is a step in the right direction. I don't think it's a sufficiently big step. Um, but um, obviously, we will we will have to wait and see. What do you make of these 18-inch wheels? I mean, I don't even know why they've been 13 inches for so long. I think it came from a regulation years back to stop people putting massive disc brakes on the cars. And so they just said, well, we'll limit the wheel size, and therefore there's only so much disc you can get behind a wheel of that size. But that may even that may be wrong. Uh, it always struck me as being very strange that um, Formula One cars have these tiny little wheels and these enormous sidewalls. Um, and now they seem to be going, well, even though 18 inches is still not great by road car standards, is it? No, it's a big difference, though, 13 to 18. Uh, yeah, 13 to 18. Now with low-profile tyres... Um, I remember on the McLaren Senna launch in Portugal, I just happened to be sat at dinner on the same table as J.R. Hildebrand, uh, the IndyCar driver. He's the guy who came within a corner of winning the Indy 500. If, wow. If you haven't, I think it's 2011, if you haven't seen that footage, oh my God, it's extraordinary. And he's never got close to winning another a race again. It, it's, it's incredible. Anyway, I was just chatting to him. Um, he's a really interesting guy, very... He's very bright, very switched on. Um, and he was describing the time several years before that he tested a Formula One car. It was a Force India, um, and he tested it at Jerez in Spain. Um, and the first thing he spoke about was the tyres, with their, the enormous sort of ballooning tyres with a big sidewall. And he said that it felt, underneath him, just so squidgy. And he just couldn't get used to the feeling of all that tyre sidewall deflecting. Um, and, you know, after driving Indy Lights, he, he said he really struggled to get a handle of it. Um, and so I think it's probably fair to say that these bigger tyres, but with a lower profile sidewall, will have a, a profound impact on how the cars handle, how they feel for the drivers. So it will change things. Um, and... I don't know. I look forward to seeing, I look forward to hearing uh, the drivers describe what the difference is. Yeah. And, and the other thing is you, you can't just bang a wheel and tire like that on a car um, you know, because the, the knock-on are consequences all the way down the line. I mean, you know, you, you'd, you have to, for instance, completely redesign your suspension um, to cope with it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I, think, I think it's going to be a vast journey into the unknown. 
I don't know whether they're going to allow more testing this uh, this winter to allow people to get their heads around. I kind of hope they don't. Um, I think these things should just be a lottery, but it'll certainly be interesting to see. And I, and I really, really, actually, I think we are, we're, we are actually having quite a good season at the moment because, yeah, as I talk, um, you know, Max is obviously ahead of Lewis and th- there appears to be a proper fight for the championship between, not between two drivers for the same team, but between two different teams. And, you know, frankly, it's been a while since we've had that. But, um, you know, I think that this has perhaps been the exception to a rule that has been around for far too long. And hopefully next year, um, you know, there'll be lots in the mix. Mm, oh, I really hope so. It'd be great to see Ferrari, McLaren, um, some of the rest fighting for wins. I, it, Formula One really, really needs it. Uh, okay. All right. Let's leave that one there. Um, please remember, everyone, just go and download the app, start your free trial. There's some good stuff up there at the moment. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, as ever, we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. All the best. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.